Find two passages of Scripture in your Bible, Exodus chapter 2, verse 9, and Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. Exodus 2, 9, and Hebrews 10, 23. We're in this series entitled, Take Heart, because we don't want to lose heart as we see wickedness growing around us. So in this series, we've asked, is wickedness growing? We've seen how to pray when wickedness is growing. Last week, we considered how to overcome when wickedness is growing. And this morning, we want to learn how to have faith or how to strengthen our faith when wickedness is growing. So let's jump right in and read these verses. Exodus chapter 2, verse 9. It says, Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. The child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses and said, Because I drew him out of the water. And then Hebrews chapter 11 tells us about the life of Moses. 11, chapter 11, verse 23, By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen." By faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood so that he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch them. Now, last year, I preached through the life of Joseph in the Old Testament. And you may remember that at the end of that series, Jacob and his family joined Joseph in Egypt. Joseph's wisdom had saved Egypt from a famine. Pharaoh made him second in command. It appeared that Pharaoh would do anything for Joseph because Joseph had done everything for Pharaoh. So Genesis 46 says Jacob and his family numbered 70 people. They lived in Goshen, which was part of Egypt, and all was well. But Exodus chapter 1, verse 8 is a turning point in the story of the Hebrews. It says there arose a king, in other words a Pharaoh, there arose a king who knew not Joseph. He knew not Joseph, nor did he want to know about Joseph. In this period of time, the Hebrews had greatly multiplied per God's promise to Abraham. This Pharaoh was afraid they might turn against Egypt, so he enslaved them. And the more he afflicted them, the more they grew. And this is where we learn about trusting God when wickedness is growing. Pharaoh decided to decimate the Hebrew population. And in Exodus 1.22, he commanded that every Hebrew boy born be cast into the Nile River. So when Moses was born, the known world was plunging into wickedness. An unmistakable sign of wickedness in a culture is when it considers the lives of babies and children to be expendable. So Pharaoh ordered infanticide as well as ethnic cleansing. Therefore, Egypt was politically, or you could say governmentally wicked, but they were ethically wicked. No people should consider themselves just in the eyes of God when slavery exists. It's wicked to be callously insensitive to the plight and poverty of those who are enslaved. 
But Egypt then was spiritually wicked, and this was a source of all their wickedness. They worshipped frogs and snakes. I don't like snakes. I don't know about you. Found one mowing the yard the other day. Always blesses me when a snake jumps out and scares me to death. They worshipped snakes. They had a sun god that was named Re, R-E. Amon was the god of the wind. Osiris was the god of the dead. And Pharaoh thought he was a god, and the people viewed him as a god. And it's in this environment that Moses' parents, whose name were Amram and Jochebed, brought Moses into the world. Pharaoh said Moses had to die. But look at Hebrews eleven twenty three. if you have your Bible open there. It says, by faith... Moses, when he was born, was hidden for, th for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. This is speaking of the faith of Amram and Jochebed. So by faith, they defied Pharaoh. By faith, they hid Moses for three months, but they could only hide him for three months. I just had a mental picture of this while writing this sermon. The scripture doesn't say this. But I just wonder if this is how it went. I can see Pharaoh's men busting into Hebrews' slave quarters on the rumors of a crying baby. So they march among the shacks, checking every single one. They brutally assault anyone that gets in their way. And sure enough, they find a little male baby. And they rip that baby from the crying mother's arms, march down to the Nile, and they laugh as they throw that baby to the crocodiles. Man's inhumanity to man on full display. So Amram and Jochebed must have gone to great lengths to conceal her pregnancy, her childbirth, and those first three months. And they evidently decided that if Moses died, it wasn't going to be at the hands of Pharaoh. So they took him to that same river, put him in a wicker basket covered with pitch, and set him among the reeds in the Nile. It was an act of desperation, but it was also an act of great faith. The historian Josephus says that Moses' parents received a revelation from God about Moses. Now, Scripture does not verify that, but that would help explain why they were unafraid of Pharaoh's edict and why they had the faith to set Moses in a basket in the Nile River. I think this story is very helpful to answer a question that is often posed. Should we bring a child into a world like the world of today? Folks, man was born to trouble as sparks fly upward. And the biblical command is to go forth and multiply. If couples stopped having children when times were difficult, none of us would be here, including Moses, who isn't here. He's in heaven, but you get my point. They would have stopped having kids during the Great Depression. We wouldn't be here. So never, never make that decision that you can't bring a child into a world because of the wickedness that is around you. Now, if we go on in this story, we see that God wonderfully delivered Moses. Pharaoh's daughter saw the basket. Meanwhile, Moses' sister was all over the situation. She's watching from a distance. She asked Pharaoh's daughter if she could find a Hebrew woman to nurse him. She went and got her mom. And by God's kind providence, Jochebed got to raise him for a time. Look at Exodus 2, verse 9. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, that's Jochebed, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And verse 10 said, the child grew, which is a key statement. The child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. I was really curious. 
about the amount of time that elapsed between verse 9 and verse 10. It says the boy grew. I could find almost nothing save two sources. One said Moses was seven years old when Pharaoh's daughter got him. The other said 10 to 12 years old. Now, I'm very skeptical of that, but here's the point. In whatever short time she had, she must have done her best to instill truth in him. Perhaps at whatever level he could understand, she gave him instruction to love God with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength, to reject all the false Egyptian gods, and taught him there was a coming Messiah who was going to save people from slavery, both physical and spiritual. This is an encouragement to all parents. I know that some of you are fighting a hand-to-hand -hand combat battle against the influence of this evil culture against your kids. Instilling God's Word in them is of the utmost importance. If you believe the Word of God has authority, that it will accomplish God's purposes, that it will not return void, then recognize you are not hunkered down playing defense against a flood of evil. You are on the offense against evil. Don't assume you'll lose. Attack evil by giving your kids the life and light of this word. And don't assume that a setback here and there means you're going to lose. Instill the word of God in them and then trust that they will walk with Jesus every day of their life. Not turning to the left or the right, but they would always walk with him. And for those whose adult children are not walking with Jesus, pray that the Holy Spirit would use the implanted word and that the Spirit would convict them of sin, righteousness, and the judgment to come. And never give up on praying for your children. What we learn here in many ways is to trust God when wickedness is growing. Number two, making decisions by faith when wickedness is growing. Moses is now an adult. And we see in Hebrews three key decisions necessary to live by faith as wickedness is growing. Number one, we choose to endure ill treatment. We choose to endure ill treatment. Now, to the natural man, those words are absurd. But suffering for the cause of Jesus is the normal Christian life. Don't bring it on yourself, but if you're a Christian, it's going to come to you. So verse 24 of Hebrews 11 says, By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with God's people. Moses grew up in Pharaoh's palace. Pharaoh's daughter raised him as her own. He was groomed to be royalty. He had the best of everything the world had to offer. He had to summon the courage to stay true to God and refuse this life of comfort, ease, and pleasure. Acts tells us Moses was 40 years old when he made this decision. So for 40 years, Moses enjoyed the pleasures of the royal lifestyle. But notice in verse 25, he called it the passing pleasures of sin. That awakens every one of us to the fact that God brought you and me into the world for a greater purpose than pursuing pleasure. 
Investing your life deeply in this world is like investing in a room in a cockroach-infested motel. I mean, the walls are sweaty concrete block. They've been spray-painted white. The window air conditioner is blowing out mildew. You can tell I've been in one. The room's old and it smells bad, or the bed's old and it smells bad. The whole room stinks, but you put money, time, and effort into it. Your main focus in life is fixing up that room, and it finally becomes a show place you enjoy for a few years, and then you die, and the cockroaches move back in. It was all a waste. Verse 25, Moses rejected passing pleasures and chose to endure ill treatment with the people of God. Part of that meant he would spend the next 40 years of his life tending sheep. Then in one short period, he got God's people out of slavery. And then the last 40 years of his life, he spent leading the rebellious Hebrews in circles in the desert. Now, how could he endure those 80 years, 40 years being a shepherd, 40 years wandering in the wilderness? He endured, according to verse 27, he saw him who was unseen. Faith looks past death. It looks into eternity. And Moses' refusal of pleasure points us to Jesus. Jesus experienced perfect fellowship with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. But Philippians 2.7 says he humbled himself, taking the form of a bondservant being made in the likeness of men. Jesus did not hold on to what was rightfully his. In humility and in love for you and me, he chose to endure ill treatment and he died on a cross for us. Moses lived 1,500 years before Jesus. But like Joseph in the Old Testament, he is very much a type or a picture of the Lord Jesus. For example, Pharaoh tried to kill Moses as a baby. Herod tried to kill Jesus as a baby. Moses tried to save his kinsmen through the death of an Egyptian. Jesus tried to save his kinsmen through the death of a Jew himself. Moses was sent to Israel to deliver them from physical slavery. Jesus came to deliver us from the slavery of sin. Moses was an exiled shepherd. Jesus was the good shepherd. Moses went from a palace to poverty. Jesus went from a throne to a cross. And therein lies the lesson for us. When wickedness is growing, for verse 25 to be real in our life, we take up our cross. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That verse vaporizes cultural Christianity. There are movements of Christianity today without the cross. Christianity without the cross is not Christianity. If Moses thought like some Americans think, I think he might have said, well, what if I could still enjoy the pleasures of Egypt and somehow figure out how to deliver Israel? I mean, wouldn't it be better to remain on the inside, be close to Pharaoh, know what he's doing, and figure out a plan of deliverance from there? That's purely human reasoning. Taking up a cross involves a painful path, and the only way that you and I can take up a cross is by faith. Moses took up the cross in a metaphorical way to endure ill treatment with the people of God. Now that's decision number one. Number two, we choose reproach looking to the reward. Verse 26, it says, Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Reproach means insults or revilings. It means 
disgrace and dishonor, shame and contempt, hardship and suffering. But how could he consider the reproach of Christ? I mean, he's 1,500 years before Jesus. He prophesied of the Messiah's coming in Deuteronomy 18, 15, and he knew that that Messiah would be reproached. So Moses bore reproach from Pharaoh when he came the second time to redeem the Hebrews. You remember this? Pharaoh scoffed at him, and he ordered that the Hebrews make bricks without straw. So the Hebrews reproached him, saying, May the Lord look upon you and judge you, for you have made us odious in Pharaoh's sight. Just like Jesus, Moses went to his own, and his own received him not. And Moses finally said, O Lord, why did you send me? Brothers and sisters, we ha it's not easy, but we have to be willing to bear Jesus' reproach. Now, the Bible tells us this will happen. 2 Timothy 3.12, if you want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. Philippians 1.29, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Acts 14, 22, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Peter said, even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you're blessed. He said, if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but to glorify God in this name. And Jesus very plainly said, you will be hated by all because of my name. And praise God, he also said, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you. And falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. That's reproach. He said, rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. Verse 26 says Moses was looking to the reward. Now the reward is Jesus, yes. But he is so gracious there are rewards based on how we serve him and live in this life. If you bear the reproach of Jesus, you will be rewarded. Do we want the smile of culture, maybe our coworkers or our neighbors, or do we want the smile of Jesus? Sometimes you have to choose between the two. And Jesus said, beware when all men speak well of you. But we'll be rewarded for bearing the reproach of Christ. We'll be rewarded for giving, that's Matthew 6.3. We'll be rewarded for praying, that's Matthew 6.6. 6. We'll be rewarded for sharing the gospel. 1 Corinthians 3.8, a verse written to people in Corinth, which is a modern-day Las Vegas. He said, now he who plants and waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his labor. The way you work will be rewarded. Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. And bold faith will be rewarded. Hebrews 10.35, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. We don't do these things for the reward. We do these things because we love Jesus. But right now you need to consider or calculate the reproach of Jesus as greater treasure than anything in this world because they are greater treasure. And you'll find that out in all eternity. So we choose to endure ill treatment, we choose reproach looking to the reward, and number three, we see him who is unseen looking to the promise. At age 40, Moses left the palace to see his people as slaves to a wicked regime. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew slave, and he decided to do something about it. 
Acts 7.22 says he was mighty in words and deeds. He, he must have been a very strong man. Josephus says that the Ethiopian armies attacked part of Egyptian territory and they were on the verge of inflicting defeat. So they summoned Moses to command the Egyptian army and he brought a great victory. Now whether or not that's true, I don't know, but he killed the Egyptian oppressor and hid his body in the sand. I guess he thought he was going to deliver Israel one man at a time, I don't know. But the next day he broke up a fight between two Hebrews and one of them said, you do not mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday, do you? So look at verse 27, it says, by faith he left Egypt, and for good reason. Exodus 2.16 says Pharaoh was going to kill him. But look carefully at verse 27. I think this is important. It says, He left, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who was unseen. Some take that as Moses leaving Egypt the second time, after he returned from the desert, after the ten plagues, after Pharaoh let the people go. I think it refers to him leaving after he killed the Egyptian. If it was the second time, why would it say, by faith, not fearing the wrath of the king? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Moses saw ten plagues and a whole host of miracles. Pharaoh was a defeated foe. Number two, it doesn't fit the chronological flow here. Verses 23 through 29 seem to be in order. If he was leaving Egypt the second time, it would logically come after the Passover in verse 29, but instead it's before the Passover and right after bearing reproach. And number three, it says, by faith he left Egypt. It mentions no one else. Now some say, well, the reason Moses left the first time was fear. Exodus 2.15 says Moses fled from the presence of Pharaoh, but the text doesn't say that's why he left. Remember, Moses knew he was the God-sent deliverer, and that's why it says at the end of verse 27, he endured as seeing him who is unseen. As he left Egypt, his focus is still on the one who was unseen. Now you might ask, if Moses believed he was called to deliver Israel, then why not just throw down right then and there? I mean, he outed himself by killing the Egyptian. If he knew he was the deliverer, why not go for it? The day was wicked. The people were enslaved. Two reasons. Number one, the Hebrews didn't yet believe that he was the deliverer. Acts 7.25 refers to Moses killing the Egyptian. It says, he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. So really, they weren't ready, but also, God knew Moses wasn't ready. So over the next 40 years, God took the man who lost his temper and killed a man and sent him into the desert to change him into the man that Numbers chapter 12 says was more humble than any man on the face of the earth. Even in times of wickedness, God's timing is not necessarily our timing. Two thoughts. Number one, don't despise times of preparation. You may see something that you believe God has called you to take on. Maybe it's a wickedness to confront, but God is only preparing you for that. Trust that God will do in your life what He wants accomplished at the right time. But never despise those times of preparation. God teaches you things and builds your faith in ways you cannot learn otherwise. 
For example, Moses was obviously strong and courageous, but he was not under control. So God had to humble Moses so much that by the time he spoke to him from a burning bush, there was nothing left of that self-assured man who killed a man. Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? Sometimes God has to work on us so we'll transfer our faith from ourself to him. The second thing is this. Endure by seeing him who is unseen. Even when wickedness is growing, remember that the God we cannot see can do the impossible. So hang in there. He used the daughter of Pharaoh, the Pharaoh who knew not Joseph, who enslaved the Hebrews, who ordered the drowning of male babies. God used his daughter to find a three-month-old infant in the reeds of the Nile, and Pharaoh raised the boy who would bring his own downfall. He raised him in his own household. God can do anything. Endure by seeing him who is unseen. And we end this passage with verse 28 and a transition into the time of the Lord's Supper. It says, By faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood so that he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch them. Moses observed the first Passover. They slaughtered an unblemished lamb, which was a picture of the coming Savior. They ate unleavened bread, which was a picture of his sinless life. And so they sprinkled this perfect lamb's blood on their doorpost. And with the death angel passed over Egypt, all who were covered by the blood were safe. That was the first Passover. In an upper room over 2,000 years ago, Jesus observed the last Passover. We call it the Lord's Supper. It is a memorial of his death. What you see on that table, what you'll have in your hands shortly, is a representative record of his finished work on the cross. This bread and this juice, they're merely symbols. They're not sacraments. A sacrament means grace is imparted. Jesus is the one who imparts grace to us. This is called an ordinance. An ordinance is something that is commanded by the Lord Jesus in the Gospels and given by him for his followers to practice. It was passed on by the apostles in letters to the churches and it was practiced by the early church in the book of Acts. So the ordinances are baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now I'm going to ask the men who will serve this to come forward at this time. This is an ordinance for those who have been baptized by immersion uh, after salvation. Because baptism is the first step of obedience in the Christian life. And the Lord's Supper is an ongoing step of obedience. But this is a time that we remember His sacrifice. that he died on a cross, that he bore our sins in our place, that he was buried, that he rose on the third day, that he ascended to heaven, and that he is coming back. It's so easy in life to get unfocused. I mean, um, I struggle with it. I know you do too. I had a conversation with someone last night about how cell phones have just divided and conquered our attention. And I could elaborate on that further, but my point is this. It's just very easy to forget the centrality of the Christian faith. And sometimes we've heard it so much that it just kind of rolls off our ears. The Lord's Supper is for a time 
a time for us to slow down and take those truths to heart. That He died on the cross for our sins in your place. And that by faith in Him, you have eternal life. Man, this life is not like... Your life is hidden in Christ, the Bible says. So we remember His sacrifice. This is also a time to examine ourselves. Where am I not walking with Jesus? And then it's a time to repent. It's not a time to say, I'm not walking with Jesus. I think I won't observe the Lord's Supper today. It's a time to say, there's sin in my life here, Lord Jesus. I repent, and now I joyously participate in the Lord's Supper, knowing that my sins are forgiven. And as we do this, we also proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. And as we do this, let's remember that our well-being does not lie in the hands of the wicked. God is sovereign. It lies in the hands of the one who gave his life as a ransom for many.